it's easy to take a text that was directed toward the nation of Israel. Yeah. Dealing with Israel's failure, for example, in the Mosaic Covenant, if we just kind of hop in or pull things out wherever we want, you're going to end up with a different religion. Yeah. The most important thing is to read through the text over and over again, because otherwise it's easy to end up with an approach where I'm looking for some experience to validate the verse I read this morning. It's sort of like a fortune cookie. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal. You know, a few months back before the outbreak of the coronavirus, I had the opportunity to visit my good friend Mike Brown for a theology conference at his church in northern Italy. Mike is the co-author of Sacred Bond, Covenant Theology Explored, and he's the pastor of a URC church plant just outside of Milan, which happens to be the part of that country which was hit the hardest by the current pandemic. Many of you will have heard the special interviews I recorded with Pastor Brown a few weeks back. If you haven't heard those episodes, you can still find a link to them on the front page of our website. On today's program, you'll hear a conversation that Mike and I recorded on how to study the Bible. But before we air that exchange, I thought I'd get him on the line once more so that he could give us a brief update about his church's situation. Mike Brown, how are you doing? Shane, I'm doing all right. Family's healthy. and Even Nacho? Even Nacho, our French bulldog. He keeps us entertained, so we're very thankful for Nacho. For our listeners, Nacho is a very affectionate bulldog who basically runs the show over there at the Brown household. (laughs) Now, Mike, the last time we spoke, uh, you mentioned that one of the members of your church had come down with a virus and was admitted to the hospital. So how is Sabino doing now? Yeah, thanks. He's doing much better now. He was on a ventilator for more than two weeks, and it was actually pretty touch and go. And as you've probably heard in the news, the hospitals here are just overflowing. It was terrible for so long. We're finally seeing a drop in some of the numbers now. But while he was there, uh, several people died around him. The guy in the bed right next to him, whom he got to know a little bit, died while he was there. But Sabino recovered by God's grace, and he's home. He's still doing uh, isolation time, uh, and he's recovering quite well. So we're very grateful for that. And everyone else in your congregation is healthy still, right? Yeah, everyone's healthy. We've had several people who've become very ill and have shown the symptoms, but of those that have been tested, uh, all of them have come back negative. There was a few who have not been tested or who weren't tested while they were ill for various reasons. So we don't know as far as, you know, there's a possibility that some may have had the virus, but there's only one person that we know who had it for sure, and he's recovered. So nobody, nobody has died. We just found out today that we have one elderly member who's in a convalescent home, and she's been very ill and showing many of the symptoms. She had the test, and it's come back negative, so we're very thankful for that, especially since I think there's been 18 deaths related to the coronavirus just in her convalescent home. So uh, obviously you're thinking about, you know, the husband not being able to go see her, the kids not being able to be with her during the last hours, all of those things that are just terrible. There's been so much of that here in Milan. I mean, we've literally just been around so much death and sorrow Hmm. that uh, we were preparing for the worst, but we just got some good news today that the test actually came back negative. Well, thankfully, your country appears to have passed its peak 
but you guys are still seeing around five to 600 deaths per day, with most of them taking place there in your region of Lombardy. In light of that, what are the authorities saying now in terms of uh, when they think they'll be able to relax some of the restrictions? Yeah, we're, we watch the news and the, the press release every evening. In fact, it's going on right this minute as we speak. And they're saying right now that we're still under lockdown until May 3, a complete lockdown, but they're going to start reducing some of the restrictions. I mean, this is a very strict lockdown, I should tell your listeners, because I, I know everybody's under lockdown, but not everybody's having the same experience. Um, there's a lot of people that I talk to in the United States where they're still able to go to the grocery store with lots of people. We can't do that. We have to go and it's very regulated. They only allow so many people in at a time. You basically can only leave your house maybe once a week just to go do that. But you have to carry forms with you and prove to the police that you're outside you know, for an essential reason. Uh, they're hoping to release some or start easing up on some of those restrictions. We haven't heard anything yet about church. That's the big one, of course. And we're sort of preparing that, you know, they'll probably come out with some plan of having only so many people per square meter of your facility. We don't know what that looks like. Um, we'll probably need to wear the mask. And because right now the mask is absolutely essential by law everywhere in Milan and in Lombardy, because as you mentioned, it, it's been hit the hardest here in, in our area, in our region. Our city has just been devastated. You think you'll be able to have services sometime in May? Well, we certainly hope so. Um, we've now done seven Sundays over the internet and, you know, as everybody's doing these online services, which, you know, is, it's better than nothing, but boy, it's a far cry from the ordinary means of grace. And we certainly miss everyone at one another. We miss the Lord's Supper, the singing, everything. We're hoping that, yeah, May would be great, but most Italians you find here, people are they're more cautiously optimistic and a little more realistic in their expectations. Most people seem to be thinking it's probably going to be summer before we're able to get back to normal. Now, Italians are a very affectionate people. And the last time I was there at your church, I received a lot of hugs and kisses and not just from the ladies. Right. <laughs> so do you think that some of those sorts of practices are likely to change whenever you are allowed to resume meeting together? You know, that's a great question. I know it might sound superficial to a lot of listeners, but actually it's such a huge part of the culture here. I mean, as, as Paul even mentions in one of his letters, greet one another with a holy kiss. Yeah, we don't take that literally, but you guys do. <laughs> we, we, we do. We do. We, there's, the, there's the Mediterranean kiss on both cheeks. And, and part of uh, Italian culture is greetings. Greetings are enormous here. And when you see a friend, that's what you do. And besides that, Italians just generally, as you mentioned, are very affectionate, touchy people. It's very possible that that was part of the reason why there was a spread so quickly of the virus here in northern Italy. Yeah. So we don't know what that's going to look like. More than likely, we'll have to practice social distancing for quite some time with the mask, maybe only so many people inside the church facility at once. And yeah, we're used to not just handshakes, but hugs and kisses. That is the normal par for the course here. Uh, I don't know what that's going to look like, at least initially. Um, I really have a hard time believing that Italians will just stop hugging and kissing altogether in the future. I think there'll be some time where we have to adjust to, you know, these sort of temporary norms of getting used to doing social distancing and, and this sort of thing until they're ready to resume sort of a normal lifestyle again. All right, Mike, thanks for getting us caught up with your situation over there. And please know that many of us here in the States have been keeping your church in our prayers. We are very grateful for your prayers. Thanks, Shane. All right, stay safe. All right, thank you. You too.
And now here's my earlier conversation with Mike Brown on how to study the Bible. Mike, as always, it's great to have you with us. Happy to be here, Shane. So in this program, I'd like to provide our listeners with some basic tools to help them get a better understanding of the Bible. How do we properly exegete a given text or passage of Scripture? And then how do we move from there to properly teaching and applying what we've read? Now, before we speak positively about how we study the Bible, I think we should first talk about some of the popular approaches that are out there that we should try to avoid. Uh, What are some that come to your mind, Mike? Definitely, there is the approach of looking to the Bible for what interests me. So often, we tend to look at the Bible or we approach the Bible as a kind of how-to manual spiritually. So, you know, I've got a question, you know, about how to raise kids. Um, Maybe I may have a question on how to improve my marriage or I have a question on, you know, how can I just have more patience? And we just go hunting around for verses. Stress relief. Yeah, whatever the case may be. And, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about those things. But we need to remember, I think from the the get-go, that the Bible is not a how-to manual. It's not a manual of any sort. It's not, what was the acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> now, that's that the book for me. <laughs> but it's God's special revelation to us that is written on the stage of redemptive history over thousands of years through over 40 authors, given to us in 66 different books, different genres, but all together giving one basic theme that God redeems the people for himself through Jesus Christ. If we don't start there with what the Bible is about, we're, we've already embarked on the wrong course. So it'd be kind of like going through Harry Potter looking for stress relief. <laughs> that's a, that's there's a, good. There's right. a bigger plot right. and, yeah. and narrative that you need to follow. Right. Uh, Voldemort bad. Uh, Harry Good, right, right, uh, right. Harry Wins. Right. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right, right. Any any story. That, that's actually a great analogy because, okay, in, in our culture, we tend to see people have um, refrigerator magnets with verses on them. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's fine. If you know, It's good to memorize particular passages of the Bible. But, you know, Shane, a lot of Christians don't even know that chapter divisions and verse divisions aren't in the original text. Right. That's something that I think was around the 16th century yeah. that was inserted. That's a very helpful tool and apparatus to help us remember where to find things. But we need to keep in mind that the Bible was the way it was written. It was designed for us to read from beginning to end. Think of like the epistles, for example. It's a letter. It's written to a particular church or individual with the beginning and end, main body, a point that the author wants to make. When I've preached through epistles in the past as a pastor, I've tried to encourage the congregation, you know, this week, if you can, try to read through it. You know, not, In one not sitting. A, yeah, in one sitting, because, yeah. for example, if you're, if you're preaching through Philippians, it's only four chapters. Yeah. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to read through, but at least gives you that sort of context. I think we have to start there because, as you said, you're not going to go to a novel. You're not going to go to Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something or whatever it is and just pick out your favorite page here or there. You read it from beginning to end because it does tell a story. Well, the Bible is doing the same thing. I, I really think it's important that we begin there, that this is the big context, the redemptive historical context, yeah. as we would say, before we delve into the particular passage that we're trying to study. So we often come to the Bible with the wrong questions. Exactly. If, we're, if we're seeking, how do I fix my marriage Although the Bible might address this issue of marriage, it will do it in a different way than you think, because it's not a self-help manual. 
there's a larger story that you're going to be caught up with here in this story of redemptive history. That's precisely yeah. right. I think God provides the questions that we should be asking yeah. when sometimes we're not asking the right ones. That's why I'm a big proponent of reading the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, try to do even Leviticus, even Leviticus. (laughs) Leviticus is surprisingly really good when you know that it's about Christ ultimately, that it's fulfilled in Christ, then it becomes very interesting. And yeah, there are, look, there are particular passages and chapters in the Bible that aren't going to be as interesting. You know, when you're reading it as a family and it's, uh, if you're doing Bible reading every night or whatever, and you come to a genealogy or you come to instructions on how to build the tabernacle, not exactly the most interesting thing, you know, or Joshua and how the land was divided up or Nehemiah, you know, this guy put this many bricks in the wall and that kind of thing. But the story as a whole all fits together. And it's important that we do read through Genesis through Revelation systematically, I think, so that we get a full understanding and, and a bigger view of what God is saying to us. Our problem is we're so often looking for the wrong thing or we want God to say what we want him to tell us, when in fact what we need to do is sit, be quiet, and listen to what he has already said from beginning to end. I think that's the starting point. Now, there's another related view that we need to talk about, and that's uh, the sort of approach which says, you know, what this text means to me is, you know, where you are basically creating out of thin air the interpretive method that you choose for yourself. Right. It's easy to take a text that was directed toward the nation of Israel. Yeah. At a particular time, dealing with Israel's failure, for example, in the Mosaic Covenant. So a classic example of this, I mean, there's so many, but one that we often see in the United States, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Uh, I remember shortly after 9-11, seeing that verse with an American flag everywhere, as Mm. if God were saying, my people are the United States, and yeah, you've had this awful terrorist attack, and maybe there's these things happening that you don't agree with politically, culturally in the United States, but if everybody gets together and prays, then I'll hear and I'll heal your land. I'll make things better for you. When in fact, that text has nothing to do with the United States. It has nothing to do with any nation other yeah. than Israel. Yeah, God's saying my people. <laughs> right. And how, do, and how do you learn that? You you know what? You learn that from reading the story from beginning to end. Right. If you read the story from beginning to end, then you know, oh, there was this nation, Israel, that God chose and brought them out, gave them the law, uh, showed them miracles, brought them out of slavery, brought them into the promised land, but had a covenant with them if they obeyed. They would be blessed as a nation. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. That's the context for understanding those texts later in the prophets that are really sent to the nation as covenant attorneys prosecuting Israel according to the Sinai covenant because of their disobedience. If we don't understand that story, if we just kind of hop in or pull things out wherever we want, you're going to end up with a different religion. Yeah. Again, it's why we need to know the story as a whole and understand the context of each book and, and each passage. And, you know, that's not that difficult to do. I think if you have a decent study Bible, you get something like the the ESV study Bible, the big one, or, um, you know, the Reformation study Bible, just something that has a collection of trusted scholars that do some of the spade work for you. But the most important thing is to read through the text over and over again, because otherwise it's easy to end up 
with an approach where I'm looking for some experience to validate the verse I read this morning. Yeah. I read a verse and it's sort of like a fortune cookie. It's most important to hear the Bible proclaimed and preached faithfully and properly in a, in a sound The analogy church. that I give there is like, if you're going to try to understand Shakespeare, reading it for yourself, especially if you're not familiar with the time that, in which Shakespeare wrote it, right? reading it for yourself, it's going to be confusing. There's oh, a lot yeah. of confusing right. language. Yeah. And then you could say, well, I'm going to get with a study group of other students who are reading Shakespeare. That may be more right. helpful. But if you have a scholar in the mix, somebody who's spent his lifetime studying the words of Shakespeare in his original historical context, in other words, a professor... Now you're onto something. Now you, your study group is informed by outside opinions and that's outside right. perspectives. That's that's a great analogy. Um, I think of Dante. Dante, I think, is even harder to read than Shakespeare. And if I want to learn Dante, if I want to really understand the Divine Comedy, I need to go hear a lecture on the Divine Comedy or read mm-hmm. a lecture of something of a scholar, somebody who really understands what Divine Comedy is all about. The original context, what it was that Dante was trying to communicate, his particular medieval world, everything that's going on in Florence at that time. This guy knows that and is able to explain that to me in layman's language. Yeah, then you have those other layers, you yeah. know, maybe meeting it with other friends who are interested in this and, and then reading it on my own. But simply just picking up and reading it on my own is helpful, but there's going to be a lot that I don't understand. Yes. What we don't want to do is pick up Divine Comedy by Dante or Shakespeare's sonnets and just read a line and say, what does this mean to me? Right. Kind of a narcissist approach or, you know, the experience-based approach. Well, I had this experience and this is what this means without even understanding anything of what the original author is trying to, to convey. Exactly. If we're not in contact at all with, say, a pastor who is a trained expert, not that he knows everything and, and he's a source of infallibility, but rather but a specialist, he's a specialist. He's a trained specialist. He better be your pastor better be trained in the original languages. He better have serious credential for being able to interpret sacred text. I mean, we have we expect our attorneys to be credentialed yeah. and to be trained on how to interpret the law. We certainly expect doctors to be credentialed and trained on how to interpret sicknesses and deal with the body mm-hmm. and, and be experts in that sense. Well, why wouldn't we expect the same for those who tend to our soul and are interpreting the most important text that we could ever possess as human beings, the sacred word of God? So there has to be some knowledge of the Greek, the Hebrew. There has to be an understanding of how the Bible fits together as a whole, as well as its history, as well as systematics, biblical theology. So if we're talking about the average Christian, let's say Plumber Joe, yeah. you know, with his, his family, loves the Lord, goes to church on Sunday, wants to be a faithful husband and father, priest of the home. What do I do, pastor? Well, read your Bible. Now, when you come to a passage and you don't know what it means, especially when you get to things like the prophets or the book of Revelation, there's a lot of mystery in there. Yes. When you get to those things, it's okay. You don't have to know everything. You know, you're not a trained specialist. That's okay. But you can go to your pastor and ask him. And maybe he can also help you and put you into consultation with other specialists. Yeah. Because your pastor, again, isn't the end all be all in as a source of interpretation. But hopefully he has been trained by other specialists 
who just as we have specialists for the body, if you have a problem with your eye, you don't go to a nose doctor. You know, if you have uh, a you know a problem with your ear, you don't go to a podiatrist. Uh, yeah, podiatrist. Right. <laughs> exactly. So the, 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 it's the same with regard to all the disciplines for interpreting the scriptures. There, there's professors, Hebrew, systematic theology, historical theology, the whole gamut. Hopefully, the minister has not only been trained by all of these specialists, but has also passed exams, right. has proven himself, and is continuing to grow and learn. And his authority is not a magisterial authority, but a ministerial authority right. in the sense that the authority is in the Word of God. But he is serving that to you, and he is there and available to you as well. Helping to explain it to you. Helping to explain yeah, it yeah. to you. And he will also help provide you with tools you know, so that you don't have to have that kind of pressure on you to be an expert. You don't have to right. be. I love the analogy there of the uh, the doctor who himself is not a specialist but relies on specialists. That's I mean, right. if you think about a lot of people as they're reading the Bible, it sort of reminds me of those who read their own symptoms mm-hmm. and give a self-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading my body and it's telling me something strange here because I'm feeling I have a certain set of symptoms. Right. Then they maybe Google some of their symptoms and it's either diabetes or I have pancreatic cancer or, you know, right. and I've done this. I don't know if you've done this before, but you go to the doctor and they kind of laugh. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's like Dr. Oh. Google is uh, right, right. not as helpful as a lot of people <laughs> <Right>. think. <laughs> well, the worst is the chat rooms. You know, when you get right. in, it's just the blind leading the blind. But that's the same thing as a lot of our Bible studies. Oh, people, yeah. You have people who aren't trained in right. either the text in its original language in its historical context. That's right. And so they bring a lot of misunderstanding in the same way that people bring misunderstanding in terms of their own symptoms. And so if you're at least relying on someone who is trained, there's a huge advantage. So, and that may be your minister or it may be a, somebody whose book you're reading. You know, if you do this, if you follow this particular pattern, you can erase almost 80 or 90 percent of the interpretations that are out there. That's, that's precisely because right. There's so much subjectivity out there that reigns. Absolutely. And then, you know, thinking about that, it helps us, especially if your pastor Hopefully, your minister is part of something larger than just his church, but rather is part of an ecclesiastical assembly. He's been tested by an ecclesiastical body, and he's held accountable by an ecclesiastical body. There are certain boundaries. So these are important things. Your minister, hopefully, is accountable to those things. If he is not, then he has no guardrails. He can just sort of drive all over the road, and who's holding him accountable? Which is the problem with uh, churches that are led by charismatic leaders. It's all about where this minister wants to take you this Sunday. Right. My name is Tony Park. What I really appreciate about the White Horse Inn is we start to read the Bible differently, more from a historical perspective, and it really helped us to take the focus away from our own personal experiences and uh, been a listener for six years. Hi, my name is Charles and I'm from Ontario, Canada. I appreciate the White Horse Inn and its ministry and what I find is is just the clarity of the presentation, the clarity of the gospel that Jesus has done it all. Folks, if you like this program and you listen via podcast, please consider rating the show at iTunes. The more positive ratings we get, the more exposure we get. Also, we're a listener-supported program, so head to whitehorsein.org and look for the Donate tab to help us with this important work. That's whitehorsein.org forward slash podcast partner. Did you know that you can help support the work of the White Horse Inn every time you purchase something at Amazon.com by using Amazon Smile? At no additional charge to you, Amazon will donate a small percentage of every transaction to the White Horse Inn when you link your account to Amazon Smile. 
Simply visit smile.amazon.com and enter Whitehorse Inc. That's Whitehorse I-N-C. Then the next time you shop at smile.amazon.com, you'll be helping to support our work here at the Whitehorse Inn. Again, simply head to smile.amazon.com and enter Whitehorse Inc. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn as I'm talking with Mike Brown, co-author of Sacred Bond, about how to study the Bible. Another thing we could say is that something to avoid is the application-centered approach. If you're always coming to the Bible looking for something to do, like what is my life lesson here today? What nugget can I take for me to apply today? Then we're always going to be stuck with imperatives, aren't we? Right. And explain exactly what right. that word means. First well, okay, yeah, so imperative indicative, where we're really talking about law gospel. You know, so important. There's a few tools that I think you can give to every Christian. One is, we've already talked about, read the Bible in context. Every text has a context, and we need to know that context. More and more, we're learning that, right, in our own culture from just tweets going out, and a lot of times people don't know what the context is. Another one is what we're talking about here, the imperative indicative. A lot of Protestant reformers talked about how there were two parts of Scripture, the law and the gospel. The law essentially is an imperative, a command what God wants you to do. In its essence, you know, God says, do this and you shall live. And we're wired for that, right? We're wired for that from the beginning. I mean, God gave, wrote law on man's heart from before the fall in creation. We are designed to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the point of life, is to bring God glory through these things that he loves, this, this righteousness. But indicative is... This is true. Imperative says, do this. Indicative says, this is done. And the gospel is an indicative. Christ has fulfilled for you that which you cannot do for yourself. The last Adam has done that which the first Adam failed to do. So we need to keep that in mind. Now, there's also what we understand the law coming to us as people who are in Christ. So Paul, for example, typically in his letters He's going to lay out a lot of indicative at the beginning. We think of Romans, you know, he first 11 he, chapters. Yeah, he gives you all this uh, this uh, prescription of our sinful condition in, you know, chapters one through three up to about verse 20. And then he goes into this indicative, this beautiful ex- explanation of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ from chapter three, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 11. Then you get to therefore, yeah, the therefore chapter 12 through 16 and more of its law. However, we're not under its condemnation. Rather, this is do this because you live. Yeah. Do this because you're in Christ and it glorifies the Lord. But if we're therefore only looking in view for of that, God's mercies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Therefore, because of what Christ has done for you. But if we're only looking for, well, what's the thing that I must do? We're ultimately separating the imperative from the indicative, which is the good news and why we want to go out and do things in the first place. So So in other words, if we're only focused on practical application, then we're going to naturally gravitate only to those imperative sections where Paul is giving us instructions. But he even says the rationale to be interested in the imperatives. Here's what you do in view of Christ's mercies. If we don't understand the mercy in the first place, it will just sort of be 
I'm going to do good works. This is what Christians do. And what a good boy am I? Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I guess, you know, a good maybe litmus test is to ask yourself, what's your favorite chapter in the book mm. of Romans? You know, is it chapter four, uh, where it teaches you that you're, you're justified solely by Christ through faith alone? Or is it going to be chapter 12? What do you tend to gravitate more toward? Chapter 12 is, it's all beautiful. It's all wonderful. But I guess my point in saying that is if we feel like, well, this is all sort of kind of abstract and maybe a little boring and just not really moving me until I get to chapter 12 and I find the things that God's telling me to do, then we've really put the cart before the horse in a sense. Because what's happened there is that we've just gravitated toward that law, toward that thing that we're to do without recognizing the beauty and the importance of what Christ has done for us. This is why we need to hear the gospel all the time. It's what Michael always talks about, you know, the wind in the sails yeah. of the sailboat is ultimately what pushes the boat along. I think it was Jerry Bridges that said, uh, the law tells me where to run, but the gospel is what gives me the feet. Mm. And without that, we have nothing. Yeah. That's the power. The last approach uh, I want to talk about here in terms of things to avoid is the traditionalist approach. You know, the person who says, well, I was always raised to believe that. And I guess the question that I want to come back with when I hear that is, why do you think your tradition got it right as opposed to all the other traditions that are out there? Shouldn't there be a way to evaluate whether tradition A is better than tradition B or C or D? Right. Um, Boy, that's good. Because at the end of the day, a lot of us hang out in the tradition we were raised in because mm -hmm. it's comfortable to right. us. Right. Yeah, that's important. I mean, I think of C.S. Lewis talks about the body of Christ is sort of like a house full of rooms. Yeah. And each room is a different tradition. And so there's, you know, the Lutheran room, the Anglican room, the, the Baptist room. Lutheran room has the best beer. I think the Anglican room is probably the best aesthetically. Don't go there for the food, though. Yeah, don't go there for the food. <laughs> it's English. Nah. None of them are perfect. They've all got pros and cons, but some um, are more perfect than some, some are more. I'm in the reformed room because I do believe that it's the fullest and most robust expression of Christianity. Here's where I'm going with all that. There's the necessity of us meeting in the hallway, so to speak. Right. And, and if we're not doing that, if we're not sort of evaluating, and this is why confessions are so important, if we're able to compare respective confessions, it gets us to think and to have some self-awareness. Right. And to really do some evaluation of our own tradition. And our own interpretive methods. Right. You know? I mean, really, don't we do that even with Christianity? We try to teach our kids saying that I'm a Christian simply because I grew up Christian. Right. It's not a good answer. No. You know, I think we can also apply that to our approach of Scripture. Well, why do you read the Bible the way you do? Right. So here on The White Horse Inn, we say you should know what you believe and why you believe it. But you should also know what your neighbor believes and why your neighbor believes it. You should know what motivates the Pentecostals and why they see certain texts in certain ways. Right. Because you're going to bump into them and your kids are too. So if your kids have never interacted with the Pentecostal or liberal perspective on the text that you hold dear – they're going to be influenced by this novel way of seeing the text. Absolutely. And, you know, we can apply that same thing to so many aspects of Christianity. You know, think of liturgies, for example. Maybe you visit a different kind of church, mm -hmm. an Anglican church or a non-denominational church or whatever. Why do they do things the way they do? Just as we need to ask, what do we believe and why do we believe it? What do we do in worship and why? Yeah. We need the respective traditions and to bump up against those, not because we're all right in some sort of postmodern way, but I think it strengthens, it should strengthen your convictions of why you are in a particular tradition and why you have a particular approach 
to scripture. And especially important, as you said, Shane, with our kids, yeah. you know, I love it. I've loved it over the years when, you know, my kids would come up to me and say, hey, dad, my friend at school is a Baptist and um, they do things this way yeah. at church. Why? Yeah. And, you know, rather than just immediately being critical and, you know, I try to say, well, here's why we do things this way in this particular tradition or, or liturgy. And then as I got older, you know, they had the opportunity to explore more and look around. And I'm happy that they're all still reformed and wanting a, a very reverent and biblical liturgy and, and have a covenantal approach to scripture. Uh, but without exploring other traditions, how are they ever going to be strengthened in that yeah. way? You know, yeah. they're just parroting what their parents have said. Yeah. Think about this for your typical youth group. How interesting it might be to bring in someone from another tradition. I mean, that'll get your youth group talking. Yeah. Now your youth group is not just thinking about how we have interpreted the text, but now you have to deal with this other person who's standing right there in front of you. Yeah. What you are know? the claims? Yeah. And that would be, a, I think, a healthy approach. Again, it's only going to strengthen, it should, your own convictions of why. Because there are, there's so many Christians who are just in a tradition simply because that's where they landed. Yeah, that's right. where that's where their parents that's were. That's how it was raised, and they don't know anything else. Right. Now, again, if you're raised in the OPC, you don't have to worry about the fact that you might be wrong. But... <laughs> <laughs> because it's the only perfect church, is that it? Well, I'm just saying, tradition isn't bad in itself. It's just that... There are a lot of competing traditions, sure. so you need to know what you believe and why you believe it in context. Yeah, that's right. And also have a good reason for why you value your interpretive method over the other. That's exactly right. So now that we've kind of talked about some of the things to avoid, let's transition now to a discussion about the interpretive method that we find in Scripture itself. This is one of the most important things I would love for our listeners to take away. The fact that Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you look at the New Testament, it's the fulfillment of the things promised in the Old Testament. You know, and Jesus says things like in John 5, as we studied last year in our series on John, you seek the scriptures, he told the religious leaders, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but these are the texts that speak of me. Mm, that's right. So if if you use that as an overarching interpretive method, that this Bible is really centered on Jesus, then that's going to safeguard you, isn't it? Oh, in so many ways. So I guess one of the things we should ask is how do we rightly see Christ in various parts of the Old Testament in particular? But one of the ways I think that we could safeguard ourselves is by saying, look, just as in the Harry Potter novels, we don't necessarily see Harry in every scene, but he's the major anchor mm -hmm. that the entire plot revolves around. Yeah, he's the protagonist. He's, yeah. he's the main guy. I like to think of that as sort of like the, if you ever look at Rembrandt, so many of his works, the middle part of his painting is almost illuminated by the dark background. Yeah. And so in many ways, there's parts of the scripture that are dark because it's illuminating Christ, right. ultimately. It's not that he's just this thread found here and there as if you're on an Easter egg hunt going through the Old Testament, but rather you're looking at the Bible as a whole, like one giant painting. It's Jesus Christ, yeah. the person and work that all of these things testify. And Jesus himself says those things. Yeah. He quoted John 5, you know, Luke 24, he begins with Moses and the prophets and interprets to them all the things that are pointing to him. Yeah. It's a great sermon that I wish was recorded for us. <laughs> right. I would have loved to have been on that road. And in some ways it is. It's there in the book of Acts. The apostles are preaching right. with this new method that they were given by Jesus himself. Yeah. And hopefully if you have a pastor who's faithful in proclaiming Christ and not himself or not therapy or not self-help and all the other host of things that can be preached these days, he's proclaiming to you just that, the main storyline. So when you get to things like David and Goliath, 
It's These not, are the five just, smooth stones that I can use yeah, to crush the Goliaths yeah, there's in so my many, life, right? right? There's so many versions <laughs> of, uh, you know, we, we you defeat the Goliaths in your life. Again, you know? but that's the therapeutic approach, yep. the application approach. Yep. When we're thinking of how we interpret the Bible, how we study the Bible, in many ways, we need to start with Genesis 3.15. Yeah, he will crush your head. That's right. And he will strike your heel. Well, when you get to places like Goliath and David, this isn't just like a little scarlet thread thing. You're yeah. seeing... The promise that God makes at the beginning of a champion is going to crush the head of the serpent. A champion from Bethlehem. Yeah, played out again. So all of a sudden, right, This here's this little shepherd boy, unassuming, out of Bethlehem. You remember the story. If David wins, if Israel, you bring forth your best, and if you beat our best, then we'll be your slaves, and vice versa. And then what happens? David defeats Goliath, and he even cuts off his head. Yeah. Sometimes I think... As the story develops, you should read it in a way that almost as if you don't know the ending already. Hmm. You know, like you're reading the David story. You should ask the question that they were asking in his day. Right. Like maybe he's the guy. Right. Maybe he's the one to crush the serpent's head. Maybe this is the fulfillment of things. If you take that to what happens later when he falls with this episode of Bathsheba, then you say... He's not the guy. He's not the guy. He's not the guy. And we yeah. history is still waiting for the fulfillment of the promise mm-hmm. that we need a better king. That's right. And that's why all these other kings, you said, you know, then another king arose who did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Mm-hmm. This is the dark space. Right. That's right. <laughs> and that is anticipating the light to come. That's right. There are no heroes, really. I mean, pick your favorite. Um, you know, Jacob, <laughs> Abraham, David. I mean, David's the man after God's own heart. Yeah. And he's a murderer, a, a, an adulterer. Uh, he abuses authority. It all points to Jesus Christ as really the whole point and the, the meaning of Christianity. So, you know, Shane, I mean, just if we thought of a few tools just to remind your average person, it's like to boil it down, I would say, remember every text, keep it in context. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. So when you come to a passage and it's tough, how does the rest of the Bible interpret this? Particularly, how does the New Testament interpret the old? I think it was, Mm -hmm. as Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Well, there is some truth to that. And then remember the law gospel distinction as you're going through the Bible. It's okay to ask yourself, okay, is this... Is this law here in this passage, or is this gospel? Is this a promise that God is proclaiming, or is this a command that he is giving me to do? Because there's always a huge difference. Well, folks, we're out of time, but if you'd like to hear my full interview with Mike Brown on how to study the Bible, simply head to whitehorsein.org. Here's a sample from the extended conversation. If we don't understand the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, you know, the Abrahamic being of grace and promise and the Mosaic covenant being of law with threats. If we don't know the difference between those two, boy, you're not going to make a lot of sense out of even like the Psalms that will often reference covenants. Which covenant is it talking about? To get extended editions of every Whitehorse Sin broadcast, consider signing up as a regular partner. To do so, just head over to whitehorsesin.org slash podcast partner. That's whitehorsesin.org forward slash podcast partner. Also, if you're a fan of the show, please consider submitting a review at your preferred podcast portal. The more positive reviews we get, the more exposure we get. Thanks for being with us this week, and we'll look forward to being with you again next time at the Whitehorse Inn.